All right, so we are continuing our series through the book of Acts, and we are going to be beginning this morning in verse 12. Before we do that, please pray with me. Father, help us to set aside the distractions of the week or even the morning, uh, the things that we bring into this place clear from our heads, clear from our hearts, and allow us to understand the incredible privilege that it is to hold your word in your hand, the, the miracle that is your spirit that is working in us and through us to help us to understand it, to point us to Christ in order to glorify the Father. God, help us to sense that we are on holy ground right now, not because there's anything about this building, but because your people are gathered here right now. In your name and for your sake. So we thank you for that, and we look forward to see what you're going to accomplish through your word this morning. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so starting in verse 12, we are picking up, if you weren't here for the last couple of weeks, um, Acts is the story of the birth of the church, okay? So it's the first 30 or so years of the church after Jesus uh, has resurrected and ascended into heaven and, in a sense, passes the baton then on to the apostles. And last week, Jay talked about the God's, uh, uh, Jesus' ascension into heaven. And so after this, in verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we have... All of the 11 remaining apostles and the women that had been following along Jesus in his ministry and Jesus' own mother all gathering together praying. No doubt more than a little bit rattled over their experience from the last few weeks, right? As any rational person would be when, uh, when all of your plans are completely destroyed by Jesus being unexpectedly murdered and then even more unexpectedly resurrecting from the dead and coming and having lunch with them, which actually should not have been unexpected because he told them multiple times throughout his three years that that was going to happen. But they, like us, thought he must mean something other than what it sounds like exactly he's saying because he can't mean what he's saying. And so they are surprised. And so now they're just getting over having spent the last 40 days hanging out with somebody that they watched murdered. And then he ascends into heaven and says, power is coming. Go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So understandably, they're a little shaken, perhaps a little confused. And so they do the, the wisest and most reasonable thing. Pray. Right? They devote themselves to prayer. Contrary to the typical mode of operation, which is go try something, and then maybe pray that God helps it to succeed or maybe after the fact, ask him why it failed so miserably. 
They don't do anything except pray. They gather together and simply spend time communing with God, asking Him what they should do. As Jay preached last week, he said, we cannot conceive of the best way to accomplish something that we can't even imagine. Which I thought was such a brilliant, concise line, right? To be able to say, listen, if, if I can't even imagine what the end is supposed to be, then I certainly don't know the best means of accomplishing it, right? I don't even know how to get there, so I don't know the best means of getting there. I don't even know what there is, and that's where they are right now. Not sure how to even move forward. What are they supposed to do? And so they pray. And out of this season of prayer, this is their response. It says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward, this man being Judas. Okay, so now we have the little, you, you might have parentheses in your Bible there. So this is kind of like taking a step away from what's happening right there. And it's giving you a little background side information. So side information, uh, this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Yikes. And it became known to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his place. So Peter is reminded by the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit said, this is going to happen. Judas is going to do this, and you need to fill his position that is now vacant. Now, within this, we get that little parentheses, right? The little side story. And, and what is telling and, and, quite frankly, heartbreakingly sad about that little parentheses is that evidently, after Judas hung himself because of the guilt of his betrayal of Jesus, Nobody bothered to cut him down from the tree. They just left him there. Nobody cared enough about this man to go and take care of his body. And so what we see here is evidently he's just baking in the sun until eventually, well, you know. So back to Peter, back to the present in this moment here. So they, they set up, they decide that they, they need to fill in this position. And so they come up with a fascinating criteria and an even fascinating, more fascinating way of making the choice. It says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. 
And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So the criteria that they set up is that the candidates had to be with them for the entire duration of Jesus' ministry, from Jesus' baptism in the Jordan and until they could witness his resurrection with their own eyeballs. And there were two people who met that requirement. I found that fascinating. Two names who are never mentioned once in all four of the Gospels but who were with Jesus from the moment he broke the surface of the Jordan all the way to his ascension into heaven. There were two people, and they didn't even receive a passing mention in all four of the Gospels. Now, that isn't maybe as surprising as it feels at first, because we know, like there's a moment in in, in, uh, Luke, I believe, chapter 10, where Jesus sends out 70 of his disciples. And so, and so we know that there's at least 70 people who are following him at that point, and, and none of them are named either. And so we know that there are, it's not just these 12 guys that are following him. We know that there are women with them. We know that there are all of these other followers who are with them. And it just so happened that two of them were with them the entire duration of Jesus' ministry. We wouldn't know that until this moment because they don't appear in any of the four Gospels. And then we have the casting lots. That feels maybe to some of you like a really weird thing to entrust such a serious decision into a dice roll, right? Feels a little bit like, okay, we had this really important criteria. We've narrowed it down to these two who meet all of the criteria. And so we're going to settle this in the most fair, objective way possible. Rock, paper, scissors, best out of three. (laughs) And just so we're clear, we shoot after three, right? Not one, two, that crazy people do that. You do it after one, two, three, shoot, right? Okay, so we're all clear? All right, let's decide who the new apostle is going to be. That feels weird. Like, it feels almost trivial to us to think like they can't, they just... Like, roll dice? But this isn't just some harebrained scheme that they came up with on the spot. This is, there's biblical precedent for this, right? So they are appealing to the wisdom of Solomon who says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And that the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. In the Old Testament, there are actually multiple Moments where lots are cast to make really important decisions because they viewed them as that's letting God decide, in a sense, right? Because no human will or manipulation can affect how that happens. God guides where it lands, and that's that. So this is generally viewed as descriptive rather than prescriptive, right? So Luke is describing what happens here, not necessarily prescribing or commanding that this is how we should make all of our decisions moving forward. He's just describing this is how they did it in this moment. And as it turns out, Joseph, the man with three names, draws the short straw and the lot goes to Matthias. 
So, perhaps now, finally, we can hear a little bit about our boy Matthias, right? We can, we can right the wrong of the previous neglect that the gospel writers showed him, and in the rest of the New Testament, we can glean from all of his extensive mentions to learn more about him. Nope. Because if you peruse the rest of the New Testament, perhaps engage your Bible software search engine, you will note there are exactly zero verses. These are the only two verses in the entirety of the Bible that mention Matthias. And, fun fact, this verse, verse 13 of chapter 1 of Acts, is the last mention of all of the apostles, with the exception of Peter, John, and James gets one mention so that they can reference his murder. That's it. Maybe some of you are going, hey, what about Philip? Don't leave out Philip, right? Baptized an Ethiopian. That's a pretty big deal. Wrong Philip. It's generally understood that that is Philip the deacon, who we're going to get to in a few chapters. He became known as Philip the evangelist. It's not even the apostle Philip, the different Philip. Does that strike anyone as odd that in the story of the birth of the church, the mention of Jesus' 12 apostles, with all but basically two, vanish. Jesus specifically chooses these men, lives alongside these men for three years, personally trains them, and nearly all of them fade into obscurity instantly. That is super weird, unless you've been paying close attention to Jesus' teaching all along. Because when we understand Jesus, how he lived, what he modeled, and listened to what he taught, it begins to make a little bit more sense. Let's look back at something that Jesus taught them specifically in the book of Matthew. In chapter 20, Jesus tells them this. He says, Jesus called them, this is immediately following an argument over who is the most awesome. All right, so the apostles are arguing, one of their moms gets involved and says like, my sons are the best, right Jesus? And starts like angling for her kids, which I'm sure was not embarrassing at all. And out of this argument of all of them saying, well, no, you're better, no, you're, no, you're, no, I'm better, no way, I'm the best. Like, obviously, I'm going to be the greatest. Jesus says, listen, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus says, my kingdom does not work that way. And there's two, I mean, there's more than two, but at least two important concepts that Jesus is teaching here. The first one is Jesus is teaching them the kingdom's concept of authority. Now, when we use our authority to, to exert power over others, to control them, when we regularly remind other people of the authority that we have over them or that they should or must respect us, we do not lead like Jesus. If the word submit is really common in my vocabulary and it is not always used in relation to my own submission to Christ and to others, then it is not Jesus that I imitate. Jesus is quite clear on this. That is not how authority works in my kingdom. When we begin to use our authority to serve, when we use our authority, our position, our power to give advantage rather than to take advantage, to empower rather than to control, we're getting much closer to what Jesus modeled and what he expects of his sons and daughters. The other concept, which is tied closely to that, is relevance. In the kingdom of God, relevance means something very different than in the kingdoms of the world. In the kingdom of the world, what matters and what mattered to the disciples because they're literally arguing about it, that's why Jesus has to respond in this way, is, is how much power do I have? How much influence do I have? How much control? How many people are following me? How many people respect me? Affirm me, compliment me for my accomplishments and my abilities. Title, accomplishments, acquiring toys, acquiring wealth, these are, these are the ways of the world. These are the things that make us relevant, that make us matter, or so we think. But in the kingdom of heaven, what matters is Jesus' relevance, not mine. Jesus matters. I matter by association. Now, my value and your value is rooted in the reality that we are made in and reflect aspects of, we're made in the image of, and we reflect aspects and character of God himself, right? And that's true of everyone. Everyone is an image bearer of God, whether you are a follower fully devoted to him or whether you overtly reject him. You are an image bearer and reflect certain characteristics of the God who made us, okay? Which, sidebar, is one, if we can add our own little parentheses over here, is one of the reasons why it's so essential that we love our enemies. The reason Jesus says that is because that's, that's my image bearer that you hate. Some of the things that you hate about them are reflections of me. They just don't know it. Also, you don't know yet if that's your brother or sister in me. So, 
love them. It might help them avoid some future embarrassment when you find out that's your sister. And you've got all of eternity to enjoy one another. And we make a little bit of light of it, but the reality is that's why. Those are, those are image bearers. And so that is where our value comes from. That's why we value life, because life in all of its forms reflects God. Human life, no matter what creed or faith or any, they are image bearers of God. That is where our value comes from. But in terms of the heaven of God, our relevance, our, our position, our place is a matter of service and surrender, not power and position. What does he say? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. It's not those who wield authority who are great. It is those who use what God has given them to serve and elevate others. Glorify him by doing so. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God himself, right? So he just reminds us, tax on there that, oh, by the way, if you are trying to be like me, remember, I'm God and I was born in a feeding trough. I'm homeless. Do you think my kingdom is about power and position? He came to a family of no influence to an irrelevant rural village and refused every single attempt to give him earthly power. And his followers watched him through that, learned from him, followed his example. That's what followers do. They follow the example of the one they are following. And they were learning what it means to live in the upside-down kingdom of heaven. The kingdom in which in order to live, you must die. In order to be first, you must be last. In order to be great, you must be a slave. Fortune may favor the bold, Jesus favors the faithful servants. The great within the kingdom of God do not seek to be followed, but seek to be devoted followers. The great in the kingdom of God do not seek to elevate themselves, but seek to elevate Jesus and those around them. The great in the kingdom of God are not concerned with how people respond to them but their greatest concern is how people are responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to save. Why this matters is that we should not be surprised then when we read the book of Acts and those who are closest to Jesus that he worked most closely with are not exalted on earth, but rather slip into relative obscurity to simply live as servants of the church. Immediately, they begin to give away authority and begin affirming others. 
So right out of the gate, you begin to see people like Philip and Stephen and Paul and Barnabas and Lydia and Priscilla and Aquila and many other names of men and women that we are going to encounter throughout the book of Acts. And they begin giving away opportunity and elevating others. Church history tells legends of what the other disciples did. Some staying in Jerusalem, others traveling west to Rome and beyond, others traveling east. We don't hear much about those in our context. Many going into east of Jerusalem. Tradition in southern India holds that the Apostle Thomas made it all the way to southern India. I was teaching at a pastor's conference in India once and I met a pastor who traced his family lineage back to the Apostle Thomas, his faith family lineage. Now, you can call that legend, but the 80 generations of Christian faith in his family was very real. So you can argue about who was the one who first shared the gospel with him, but the faith was real. Passed down generation after generation. There is something to be said that for the fact that when the Europeans sent missionaries for the first time to India to bring the gospel to them, they arrived and met Indian Christians. Hopefully reminding them that Christianity did not begin in Europe. They were actually pretty late to the game. That says something. And we can argue whether or not it was actually Thomas, but someone within the first few decades of Acts chapter 1 made it there. Someone who wrote no books and sought no credit and as a result, 2,000 years of followers of Jesus are there and can trace an extraordinary legacy of faith. Amen is right. The point being, 12 clearly did not see the progress of the kingdom of God being dependent on political influence or consolidating their power or their own self-promotion. They walked off into obscurity and carried the power of Christ and his spirit with them to change the world while others wrestled with the silly nonsense of politics and power. Church, we simply operate under a completely different worldview, at least we're supposed to. Completely different end requires completely different means. And I think it's worth reminding one another that when Satan tempts Jesus in the desert, it is his cultural relevance that he goes after. Jesus, make bread! You can do it! Turn those rocks into bread! People love that kind of stuff! Right? Meet, change lives by fixing their problems. They will love you for it. And Jesus' response is, I have way better bread. No? Okay, tell you what, throw yourself off the temple. People love a spectacular show. 
right? You will draw so many to yourself if you just put on a big show. And Jesus' response is, God is not a marketing ploy. Do not test him. All right, tell you what. I own the kingdoms of this earth. I will give them all to you. And Jesus' response is effectively, your kingdom is too small. And this shouldn't really surprise us when we see this tactic from him. He's a bit of a one-trick pony. It's exactly his tactic in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Right? Two lies that he tells Eve. Number one, you can't trust what God says. And number two, you'd be way more relevant if you were just like him. And then that false and grotesque irony that he teaches her that the only way to be just like God is to disobey God. And we've been believing that lie ever since. Church, I know that there are those of us in this room who are fighting desperately, practically killing ourselves and hurting people around us in our desperation to be affirmed, to feel valuable, to feel like we matter, to feel like we have some sort of position or authority or influence. And there are others of you in this room who stopped trying to do that a long time ago because you feel like that is not something that is ever going to happen. And I want to encourage you, Jesus is not interested in your self-reliance. He is not interested in what you can do, what you can make, what you can accomplish, what you can prove. Jesus is interested in your open, vulnerable, real self. The self that has the courage to let go of our illusion of control. The self that has nothing to offer but dependence and is therefore free to receive love and give love without having to prove itself. Those are the people who are first in the kingdom of God. Do not fear, church, that because you're not like, you're not a pastor, or you're not an author, or you're not a theologian, or you're not an overseas missionary, or you're not fill in the blank of whatever person you think is what you're supposed to look like. Because if it's not Jesus, then it's a lie. Set that aside. If you think that, well, if I'm not like that, then I can't possibly ever have any kind of significance in the kingdom of God. Do not underestimate, church, the impact of simple daily acts of total dependence on Jesus, motivating you and giving you the courage, leading you to simple acts of daily worship and self-sacrificial service to others. Jesus says, your Father who sees you in secret will reward you.
Revelation presents the 12 apostles elevated on thrones in heaven. And nobody even knows what Bartholomew did after Acts chapter 1. Correction, we don't know what Bartholomew did after Acts chapter 1. I guarantee you that the people to whom he brought the living Christ by his demonstration of the gospel absolutely know what he did, as did the generations of faithful Christians that followed him. John Newton, you may recognize that name. He is the one who wrote a hymn that you are perhaps familiar with, Amazing Grace. A lot of people don't know that he was actually an unbelievable theologian and pastor, a pastor of pastors, really, Um, and highly influential along with William Wilberforce in the abolition of the slave trade in Great Britain. His biographer summarizes his thoughts like this. Newton supposes that if he could search out the world to award a man, woman, or child with a trophy for being the most godly Christian on the planet, the award would not go to an eminent Christian or even to a public Christian, not to a pastor, seminary professor, or author. The greatest Christian in the world, Newton supposes, is most likely a man of faith who just barely survives in this world thanks to a homeless shelter and the meager employment he finds on the lowest rungs of the social ladder. Or perhaps, Newton speculates, the greatest Christian is a bedridden old woman in a mud cottage who has learned through years of trials to adore Christ and trust Him and His timing in everything. Such a Christian is likely unnoticed by the world and overlooked by most other Christians. The most impactful and extraordinary saints in the kingdom of God are likely the ones that you and I have never heard of. Because what matters to God in the kingdom of God, what is most impactful is faithfulness, not relevance. The most famous names in church history, I believe, will one day stand in humble awe of the precious daughters and sons that few people have ever heard of whom Jesus will elevate and declare first in his kingdom. Because having the most accomplishments, the most toys, the most respect, the most intelligence, the most convincing or charismatic voice does not equate to any value whatsoever in the upside-down kingdom that runs on principles like For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord.
Father, please help us to understand this reality. Help us to be those who delight in you, who do not shy away from utter and total dependence on you, but but realize that is our only means of attaining your kingdom and the abundant life that you promise us. And free us from all of the ways that the world has seeped into our understanding of how things ought to be. Wrestle us free of that and help us to trust your word, to delight in the reality that you are with us, that you are for us, that you are moving in us and can accomplish great things for us. Remind us, God, that you are working extraordinary miracles every day through people whose names we would not know. Remind us that we stand redeemed before you because someone faithfully and humbly shared that with us and is likely not one of the great men and women of Christian history, but simply somebody who trusted you, loved you, faithfully served you. May we be those kind of faithful servants. Give us strength, give us courage, and give us joy in following you and worshiping you by serving others.